we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to Animal Voices, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM CFRO Vancouver Club Radio in so-called Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, on unceded and ancestral Makrim, Slewatu, and Squamish lands. Today is Friday, July 3rd, 2020, and I'm your host, Leah. I use she and her pronouns, and thank you for joining me today. Our first guest is Paradox Delilah, an Australian-Canadian writer currently based in Vancouver. She is author of the debut science fiction novel, The Race. The Race imagines a world where aliens are farming humans and keeping the human population complacent by distracting them with a never-ending race across the desert. After that, we will be playing an encore interview from October of last year with the wonderful writer and decolonial theorist Afco, co-founder of Black Vegans Rock and a founding collective member of the North American Association for Critical Animal Studies. Af will be speaking with my fellow producer, Elise, on her new novel, Racism as Zoological Witchcraft, A Guide to Getting Out, on the topic of speciesism as an extension of white supremacy. So please stay tuned. Animal liberation activist Regan Russell attended slaughterhouse vigils every Sunday. She was arrested 11 times for acts of civil disobedience, helping animals, standing up for sled dogs by trespassing and exposing extreme cruelty against them, attending marine land protests, protesting on behalf of sexual assault victims against Bill Cosby when he was speaking in Hamilton, Ontario, and just a few weeks ago attending a Black Lives Matter protest. On Friday, June 19, 2020, there's a special pig vigil to protest the passing of Ag-Gag Bill 156. On that same day, Regan lost her life by a transport truck outside of Fearman's Pig Slaughterhouse in Burlington, Ontario, where she had been campaigning for a non-human animal liberation for years. Her partner, Mark, of 19 years, says that Regan was so determined that she would give her money and eventually gave her life for animal justice. Beyond compassion for others outside of her home, Regan lived with a loving human family as well as seven cats, all of whom she cared for and miss her deeply. It would be important to Regan that her death calls us into action. Folks are asking that Fearman's Pork Incorporated is held accountable for her death, which they have been misinforming the public about, calling her death an accident between a pedestrian and a transport truck. Please contact owner of Sofina Foods, Michael Latifi, at m-l-a-t-i-f-i at sofinafoods.com and call Sofina Foods at 905-747-3333. Ask them to release a pig in Regan's memory and sign a safety agreement so that all other activists can safely bear witness to the pigs in their last moments. All of the information that we gave on Regan Russell was from Dismantle Speciesism on Facebook, so please go follow them if you don't already. Thank you for sharing calls to action and honoring her memory. We will now be playing the London Symphony performing Nimrod from Enigma Variations by Elward Alger and holding space to remember Regan Russell. May she rest in power.
The Downtown Eastside Women's Center has been helping self-identified women and their children for decades, but today, the DEWC needs your help. Due to the COVID-19 crisis, the center has had to cancel its annual in-person fundraisers, depriving the center of crucial financial resources. Services such as hot meals, clothing, showers, and secure mailboxes are now in jeopardy. To find out how you can help the Downtown Eastside Women's Center, please visit their website at dewc.ca. That's dewc.ca. Paradox Delilah is an Australian-Canadian writer currently based in Vancouver, British Columbia. She is the author of the debut science fiction novel, The Race. Other than writing, she loves eating vegan food, reading, and her day job, working as a boom operator in the film and television industry. Her novel, The Race, is science fiction that imagines a world where aliens are farming humans and keeping the human population complacent by distracting them with a never-ending race across the desert. A mix of Mad Max Fury Road, The Matrix, and The Book of the Unnamed Midwife, the story follows the separate journeys of an adult woman and a young girl who both become aware of the reality as commodities and must decide what lengths they are willing to go to secure their freedoms. Hi Paradox, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So before we get into your novel, would you please tell us more about yourself and what led you to veganism as well as what led you into writing and specifically writing stories with social justice themes? So I came up on veganism when I was in my early 20s, and I went on a few dates with a vegan boy. I wasn't particularly interested in the fact that he was vegan. He was just cute. And um, during one of our dates, I asked the question, what about honey? Do you eat honey as a vegan? And he said to me, no, because it's stealing and that's mean. And I'm pretty sure I laughed in his face. And then I laughed about it several times to myself afterwards. And then I actually looked it up and read about honey and I couldn't believe how ridiculous it is. And then that made me look at all our other uses of animals for food and for products. And then I watched Earthlings and just realized I didn't have an excuse not to be vegan. At that point in my life, I was young and I was self-obsessed and selfish about pretty much everything in my life. And I was like, well, this is the one thing I cannot be selfish about. So I became vegan. Writing, I've always liked writing and words. At a young age, I realized I didn't have anything worthwhile saying. I had style, but no substance. So when I did my film degree, instead of going into script writing, I um, learned a technical role in sound while I got my life experience. And it wasn't until after I went vegan and I started caring about the world outside of myself that I had inspiration for a story. And that was this novel, The Race. That's cool that going vegan would make you have more inspiration to write and um, to produce content. Well, it, it just made me care more about the world. Mm-hmm. So it challenged me to think more and have thoughts and feelings I never would have had if I kept living in my bubble. So you are a member of the Vancouver Vegan Feminist Book Club, and we chose to read your novel, The Race, this month. And we all have had a great time reading your book, so thank you very much for sharing it with us. Can you tell us more about The Race and what inspired you to write that novel? The Race actually came to me in a dream, as cliche as that may sound. I had this vision of vehicles like in Mad Max and humans like constantly on the run and being manipulated into breeding 
to create a byproduct for this alien species. And I sat with this idea for over a year, I think, before I started writing it. But I was very careful because I didn't want it to be too obviously vegan so that people who aren't vegan would read it and enjoy it. And then afterwards, be able to think and to empathize. And I was also very cautious writing it because it is mainly an allegory for dairy farming. So it's there's a subjugation of human women. And I was very wary. I didn't want human men to save the women. That reminds me a lot of Mad Max, how the women and femmes in the story save each other and not, you know, the Mad Max guy saving them. I think it's important. Like, we don't need to be saved by men. And I'm not interested in more stories where women are saved by men. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Can you tell us specifically more about how the race is an allegory for the dairy industry? What made you choose that industry over others? I would like to give a content warning here that the response to this question does include language around sexualized violence, however, not descriptions. Um, A phrase that really struck me or a thought when I first went vegan and weighed heavily on my mind is the idea that dairy is the product of rape. It really weighed heavily on me. And I, once I understood about, you know, these cows being artificially inseminated, going to term with a baby, and then as soon as the calf is born, having it torn away from them. And you read lots of stories about, you know, the cows will pine and cry out for their young. And then the young are being put straight into a veal crate or sent to the butchers. And it just struck me as incredibly sad. And it stayed with me. There's also a sculpture um, from China, I think, although I've never found who created it, of this, it's a like a pyramid of humans all feeding from the teats of this cow. And that image was on my mind for a very long time, too. I was pretty surprised that, you know, the aliens in the story, like, don't, or at least the one that we are acquainted with, they don't realize that what they're doing is so wrong. And they think, oh, we're doing what's best for our species. And I think, like, that's what humans get stuck in. Like, we're doing what's best for our species first. And so then it's okay. So I thought the it, it took a turn for me. I felt like it was more um, about, like, experimenting, at least in the end, than it was about, like, like, farming for food or, like, milk, as I had expected it to be about. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I was also really interested in... Um... When I first went vegan, I lived in Melbourne in Australia. And in that community there, there is a man who's very well versed in um, animal experimentation in science and medicine and the processes of vivisection. So I'd heard him give quite a few talks on the horrific experiences that animals have in the pursuit of humans, like testing anything from like cosmetics to medicine. And I'd also heard him give talks on like the alternatives that are available to us for testing that we just don't explore because financially it's not built into our system and the infrastructure for testing. You had told me the other day that one of the characters was inspired by the story of a dolphin who is in captivity. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, there's um, a documentary I saw a number of years ago called The Cove, which is about the um, kind of dolphin massacre that happens in Taji in Japan yearly. And in the documentary, they interviewed a man named Rico Barry, who used to be a dolphin trainer. 
he trained um, all of the dolphins they used for the TV series Flipper back in the 90s, I guess. And he had the story about what led him to become an activist and a spokesperson for dolphins, which is when one of the dolphins that had been Flipper drowned itself, took itself to the bottom of the ocean and didn't come back up for the air. And he was there with it when he did it, when it did this. And he realized that even though like he thought he had a good relationship with these dolphins, they were still in captivity and they weren't happy. And there was no way they were ever really going to be happy living in captivity. And that struck me quite well and influenced one of the storylines in the book. Yeah, that storyline was quite like surprising to me. But also it made sense. Like it was a twist, but you know, as you explain, you know, the connection between humans in captivity and non humans in captivity that we see in our society, it makes complete sense that that would be the storyline. Yeah, because it, it doesn't matter how well we think we're treating other species. Mm-hmm. If we're using them for our own purposes, then they're never really going to be truly happy because they're not going to be living for themselves. And there was a comment that the alien made that was like, we only do what's necessary. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that, that was really profound because for them, necessary meant so much more pain for the humans they were harming. I'm wondering if it was intentional that you had the people living in the settlement eating raw vegetables. Because I felt like they, you know, once they were eating the raw vegetables, they were able to have a clear mind. And I thought maybe that was also like a little subtle hint at veganism and plant-based eating and such like once you're cut out all the bullshit you know and you just eat the vegetables your mind is clear you're able to see exactly what is going on uh i think to me it just was impractical that they would be eating another species with the lifestyle they were living like it was just their only option Mm -hmm. well that's my own interpretation then yeah (laughs) yeah it was the only sustainable reality i could envision for them as they're living underground unless they were eating bugs but i think it's more likely they would eat vegetables yeah and that they would be able to survive off vegetables right i felt like at the end it was like really setting up for there to be more you know like this has happened and now there's so much more to to be done like there's so much more work to be done and i kind of feel like i want to know What happens to the characters in the story? Like, do they just get completely demolished by the aliens? Do they just completely, you know, there's a, there's a resolution, but it doesn't really feel like it's actually resolved. Yeah, when I first wrote this novel, I had the idea that it was like book one of a trilogy. Um, So the journeys would continue. So that's how I finished it. But it was such a big undertaking from start to finish. It was a six year process to write and revise and publish this book. So right now I want to think about characters in a completely different universe, not these ones. Well, thank you for sharing. I'm wondering, I was perusing your blog and I saw a story that you had written about how you got your name. Would you be interested in sharing with our listeners about your wonderful name, Paradox Delilah? Yeah, I was 20 and I was laying in bed one night and I listened to a radio announcement. It was just a little anecdote about some kid in America. Walmart refused to write his name on his birthday cake because his name was Adolf Hitler. The Walmart was like, we're not writing happy birthday Adolf Hitler on a cake. And as I continued to read the article, um, it was uh, obviously a white supremacist family and his younger sister was named Divine Aryan Nation. And I lay there thinking, wow, if that name didn't have such terrible connotations, it's actually a really beautiful sounding name. And my whole life, I've 
read fiction novels, specifically fantasy and science fiction, and characters always have such interesting, incredible names. And I was always jealous and was like, well, I can't do anything about my name. And then I realized, oh, I'm a legal adult. I can change my name. And I looked it up, it costs like $120. And you can actually change it up to once a year, unless you're in witness protection, and then you can do it every three months, I think. So I lay there and I thought about words that I liked. And I came to Delilah first, because I love the way it sounds. But it was too soft for me, so then I thought of other words that would go with Delilah. And I came to Paradox, which I love. Like, I love its meaning. I love the way it, how it sounds. Uh, so I changed my name. How did you then come up with the names of the characters in your book? Was it a difficult process, or did it just come pretty easily? Uh, in my book, Chloe, her character name came to me in the initial dream. Like, she was Chloe from the very beginning. So a lot of the words in my book are actually, the alien words are Norwegian that I have brutalized. And so Ica is the word for not, because in my early envisioning stages, I wanted a woman who was not fertile. And that's how she'd ended up back in the race and not in the birthing farm. So her, main, her name just means not. <laughs> I like the way it sounds and I'm assuming no Norwegian will ever read my book. So I was wondering some of those words, like the blummerstock, I was like... How do you say these words? What do these things mean? I was curious if you just like made it up or if they were real words. A lot of them, they have meanings that are literal translations to what they are. And I just doubled letters or changed pronunciation. The alien species is called the guten. And in Norwegian, guten is actually the word for man. Uh, oh, I see where you're going there. And then kvinna is actually the word for woman even though the aliens are non-binary. Yeah. That was really interesting to me, too, that all the aliens, they use, like, non-binary pronouns. Like, me and them. There. That was really cool. What do you want to tell people about your novel? What do you want people to know to get out of it? So for me, I'm not a factual person at heart. Like, I don't like documentaries. I don't like reading non-fiction. I don't like news broadcasts. I like stories. I like being involved in fictional worlds and feeling for things. And I love it when, when I'm reading fiction, I can learn things because the characters have learned things or are experiencing things. And with this story, my hope is that people can feel and empathize with the experiences the characters are going to and then make the connection that this is what's happening to animals. Because I assume there are other people out there like me who prefer fiction over reality. And it will help them make the connection because they're more willing to empathize with a human character than with an animal. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and answering all of my questions and telling us about your book. Can you please tell our listeners where to find you on social media? Uh, yeah, I have a website, which is just paradoxdelilah.com, spelled exactly as you would think it is. And I'm actually not sure what my Twitter name is right now. It's Raptor Reads Baby. Uh, and my Instagram is paradox.layla. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you very much. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues to spread, it is important to stay safe. Coronavirus is now in Canadian provinces and territories. By law, if you've traveled abroad recently, you must self-isolate. To do your part, stay home as much as possible and practice social distancing. Try to maintain at least two meters away from others. Encourage those who are sick or showing symptoms to self-isolate or to seek medical attention. As always, wash your hands frequently, 
avoid touching your face, and practice good respiratory etiquette by covering your coughs and sneezes. Clean regularly used surfaces. COVID-19 symptoms can mimic colds and flu and include fever, cough, and difficulty breathing. Infected individuals may also have mild symptoms or none at all. For up-to-date information, check reliable sources like your local health authority or the Public Health Agency of Canada. My guest today is author and decolonial theorist Af Ko. Af is the co-author of the book Afroism, Essays on Pop Culture, Feminism, and Black Veganism from Two Sisters. She is also the founder of Black Vegans Rock. In 2019... PETA stated that AF has arguably done more to give black vegans a voice than any other media outlet today. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Black Youth Project, Huffington Post, and Veg News Magazine, to name a few. In 2017, AF was nominated for the People Environment Achievement Award. Her second book, Racism as Zoological Witchcraft, A Guide to Getting Out, was just published this month. Hello, AF, and welcome to Animal Voices. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. So oh, thank you. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for being here. So first of all, tell us about Black Vegans Rock. What is it and what was your aim with this project? Sure. So I launched Black Vegans Rock, which is a website back in 2016. Um, and I decided to make it because I was seeing these conversations pop up um, that were stating that veganism was this white thing. That only white people who were, you know, elitist and bougie and wealthy were engaging in this lifestyle. And I saw this conversation in multiple spaces, particularly like anti-racist spaces. And I also saw it in the vegan movement that they're like, oh, this is a white thing. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to um, kind of curate different stories from black people who were vegan, who wanted to share why they went vegan. And I populated it on a website. And um, it really just changed me as a vegan because... I read a ton of different perspectives, and it really challenged some of my own. And um, yeah, so uh, for me, it's like a representation project. It's a project that offers visibility to black vegans to kind of silence the critics who say veganism is white. Amazing. So you stayed in your new book, Racism as Zoological Witchcraft, A Guide to Getting Out, that you yourself proudly identify as vegan, but you also express that veganism and the animal rights movement as they exist today may not be enough to bring about animal liberation. Can you elaborate on this? Absolutely. And that's a really deep question. (laughs) So I'll try my best. Um, But So for me, yeah, I identify as vegan. I am plant-based. But I have always wrestled with the term vegan because it has a particular historical legacy and in popular culture, people have a particular idea of what a vegan does and what a vegan looks like. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really confusing term because I actually think a lot of people, different definitions for veganism, and even on Black Vegans Rock, just within the black community, veganism has a different connotation depending upon your life experience. Um, So for me... While I am plant-based, I don't really at times relate to the vegan movement. And as I'm getting older and as I'm reading more outside of the movement, I'm finding that this might not be the best space even just for me and the work that I do. And so I wouldn't have even written this book, Racism as Zoological Witchcraft, if I only looked at literature in the animal rights movement. Because I think that um, in order to see the full scope and size of the problem of animal oppression... We can't just assume that the animal rights movement is the only movement tackling this problem. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I did for my book was I actually purposely looked outside of the animal rights movement um, to see how other people were talking about this problem. 
And um, I, I was really inspired by conversations in a lot of anti-racist spaces that were talking about this term like zoological racism. They were talking about um, anti-racism and animals at the same time. And so for me, I would really encourage people to, first of all, stop thinking through movements when we're trying to think about a problem, because we get really limited um, in doing that. We get stuck in these bubbles. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, I would have never even written this book because if I only looked at animal rights stuff, because a lot of the literature that I draw upon in this book um, come from people who aren't even animal rights activists or who don't even openly write about animals. Mm -hmm. Yet when I was reading what they were writing, um, it blew my mind and I saw the links to animals and that's why I had to write this book because I'm like, I have to bring these conversations into the same space. And on top of it, um, I think it's important to note that I don't think one movement alone is going to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Not at all. Um, when I was reading some stuff like there's, I'll get to that later in the interview, like this one guy, James Perkinson, who does nothing with animals. He specifically writes about white supremacy and consumption. When I was reading that, I was like, wow, like I, I would bet that most animal rights activists have never even heard of this guy simply because he doesn't call himself a vegan or animal rights activist. And I, I think that's a huge problem. And so, um, yeah, I, I definitely think we need more than one movement to do the issue. I, I mean, I'm sorry, to solve the issue. Um, and lastly, I feel like, and this is something I think maybe a lot of people are noticing, I think the animal rights movement or vegan movement or whatever we want to call it, I think that it's becoming increasingly corporatized mm -hmm. and it's becoming... And I'm not talking about like individual activists on the ground who are doing the work, who are doing like sanctuary work and rescuing animals. Those uh, those people are some of the most compassionate people I've ever met in my existence. I'm talking about like how we understand what a movement is composed of these like you know nonprofits and organizations. I'm seeing a huge issue that it's becoming less and less about animals and getting people to understand animal oppression and more and more about pe getting people to just identify as vegan and eat a vegan diet. Mm -hmm. And it's becoming divorced from the issue. And I see that as being really concerning. Um, so that's why I was saying in my book, I, I, I think we have to go a little bit outside of the animal rights movement to um, help animals. And in my last chapter in the book, I purposely say like why the animal rights movement needs to release its grasp over the animal because mm -hmm. they oftentimes act like they're the only ones who care about this issue and they, they aren't. Right, right, absolutely. You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO, 100% listener-sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories. The book, I noticed, is pretty heavily critical of the concept of intersectionality as a framework for dismantling systems of oppression, which I found both surprising and thought-provoking. Uh, can you give our listeners an overview of what intersectionality is and why you feel it's not the most effective approach? Absolutely. So it's worth noting that you know intersectionality is literally just one theoretical framework of many. Mm -hmm. And so... It's okay if people don't vibe with it. And so initially I did. I learned about intersectionality when I was an undergrad, maybe about 21 years old. And it was uh, it's a legal framework um, developed by Kimberly Crenshaw. And it was designed to make black women visible in this legal structure. Because black women, for example, let's say in an employment situation, um, let's say they were experiencing both racism and sexism uniquely as a black woman. 
an employer could easily dismiss a black woman's claims by being like, well, how can we be sexist? We have women at our company, and let's say it's all white women. Mm -hmm. Or they're like, well, how can we be racist? We have black people here, and let's say it's all black men. In doing that, we kind of erase the unique situation that black women are in. And so that's why she made this to kind of make black women visible in a legal structure. Mm -hmm. Now, that term was really, really attractive to social justice movements because it provided language for this feeling we had that, like, we knew a lot of things were happening at one time in terms of oppression, but we didn't know how to articulate it. And so a lot of activists kind of borrowed that term, took it out of its legal context that was supposed to be about black women, and started using intersectional as a synonym for any connection for any oppression. And to a certain extent, I think that's okay. I think it's an attractive, seductive term. I think it makes sense. Except that it has a lot of gaps, <laughs> um, even in terms of how it's applied towards black women. And the problem is now animal rights activists are taking this framework that was supposed to be about black women that already had a, a ton of gaps, and now they're just throwing animals into the mix. And not only does that just muddy all the conversations, it dilutes each of these issues as well. And so now today in social justice movements, everyone is talking about like a hundred oppressions at one time and it's confusing. And sometimes it's, it's not um, accurate. And so in my book, I, I, I can't go into all of it right now because it would take like seven hours. But yeah. like, I go into talking about how, you know, intersectionality specifically ignores black men's situations. And I just really don't think it's uh, an appropriate framework to talk about animals. Um, and I offer something different, which is multidimensional theory. So that's basically in a, in a gist what intersectionality is and what my problems are with it. Mm -hmm. So you talk quite a bit in the book about animality and how white supremacy operates by animalizing people of color. Uh, what does this mean exactly? And what are some examples of how it manifests? Right. So um, I think anti-racist movements are quite fluent in talking about this, that we know that um, throughout the history of white supremacy, people of color have been considered to be non-human or animal, right? And so um, that's essentially what we talk about and we fight about. Now, the problem is in anti-racist movements, we oftentimes talk about animals as a metaphor to talk about our experiences, right? So I've seen anti-racist protests where people are like, you know, white people need to stop treating us like animals or mm -hmm. they treat us like we're dogs. However, what I do in my theory is I say, well, what does it look like to now actually talk about non-human animals, you know? And what does it look like when you are animalized, let's say, yourself, and now you're going to also talk about animal bodies? So that's what I do in my work. Um, I, 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 can you repeat your question because I'm losing? Oh, no. So, yeah, I was just asking you about um, the concept of animality that you talk about in your book and how... Uh white supremacy animalizes people of color. Um, mm. So, yeah, you kind of defined what this means. Sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I was just wondering, what are some examples of how it manifests? Oh, sure. So <laughs> there are almost too many. Yeah. Um, you can think about, like, police, for example. In the United States, it's a huge problem with police violence. Um, there have been a lot of texts recovered and investigations where, you know, white police officers are referring to black people as monkeys or apes. Or even how in U.S. history, black people were put in zoos. Um, to, you can think about Donald Trump, like every week, our president, you know, calling people of color animals, immigrants are animals that are dangerous. He called Omarosa, a former black staff member, a dog. So you see this language of animals being used to weaponize, um, being, being weaponized to hurt people of color. And I also think that, you know, in the theory Syl and I talk about, we not only look at the ways in which people of color are animalized, we also look at how animals 
are racialized. So yeah, that's what this book touches on as well. Right, absolutely. Uh, one thing that kind of jumped out at me in the book was you um, talk a fair amount about taxidermy as a symbol of white supremacy. Can you tell us a little more about that? Totally, yeah. So um, in the U.S., I'm going to be careful with how I say this because I don't want to like, stereotype here. <laughs> but in the U.S., <laughs> there are particular like white subcultures that kind of form their identity or express their white pride through um, displaying animal corpses. So they'll wear camo, um, be really into hunting, and you'll see taxidermy or like basically like petrified animal corpses on walls. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I started seeing how taxidermy and animal corpses kind of became the symbol of white supremacy. The taxidermy, in my own personal experience, as well as then reading, you know, scholarship from other people who've been saying this, that taxidermy almost serves as a racialized signpost for white supremacy. And in the U.S., I, I saw this connection that for certain whites who rely upon animal corpses for their identity, I saw one's desire to dominate nature was coupled with one's desire to denigrate minorities. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so in the book, I do you know, an extensive media analysis, just examining some of my favorite shows and movies, um, looking at the ways in which even in our popular culture, we kind of draw upon that connection between white supremacy and animal oppression, almost accidentally. I, I think, so I, I look at the show Santa Clarita Diet on Netflix, and they were teasing the neo-Nazi. It's a comedy show. And they purposely make him a hunter, and his house is like completely decked out in a ton of animal corpses on the wall and taxidermy. And then um, they also include a cherry wood cabinet where he has Nazi memorabilia. And so that's kind of like the theme of the episode that they're kind of poking fun, but also creating this connection between white supremacy and animals. And so in my book, I say that, you know, we recognize, let's say, a swastika as an immediate um, emotional, like, we have an emotional reaction to a swastika to highlight this white supremacist like you know sign whereas i argue that what taxidermy kind of similarly has a connection to white supremacy and similarly for me at least has a connotation that there's a white supremacist kind of environment around um so again i'm saying that lightly because i don't want to offend people but like it's something that we kind of like subconsciously know. Right. And so that's where I couple or I, or I argue that, you know, animal bodies are racialized in this particular cultural like order because um, they're purposely denigrated and purposely included in this hierarchy where white men are at the top. People of color are seen as being in the middle, kind of subhuman, non-human, and animals are at the bottom. And so it's like not only are people of color animalized, but animals are also being racialized and are also what Syl and I argue experiencing racial violence, which is a really controversial thing to say taken out of context, but with context, it, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. So um, tell me more about the witchcraft element of your theory. How do you see white supremacy as being similar to, or even being a form of witchcraft? Yeah. So this was this book, for, by the way, was a lot of fun for me to write because <laughs> I was just uh, looking through a ton of scholarship, and I had a blast. But it all started um, when after I saw Jordan Peele's popular film uh, Get Out in 2017. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that movie, I mean, I, I'm still, like, shook by that film, and I still watch it. I saw it a million times. Um, and basically, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, there's no way I could possibly summarize it for you because it's that weird. But essentially, white people are harvesting 
um, black bodies and black souls and essences. It's a really disturbing film, but it's, it's really good. And after I watched that film, I ran into the scholarship of um, a scholar named Dr. James Perkinson. And I found an article where he said that European racism is like a form of, of witchcraft. And he was kind of arguing that historically, um, think about it, like white societies or white colonizers who would go to black and brown lands, they would go there and completely take over and redefine the practices of what they perceived to be the other. And so it was really common for white people to look at the practices of black and brown people and call it primitive and oftentimes to call it witchcraft because they didn't understand it. And so Dr. Perkinson is arguing the very act of going to another nation and calling their practices witchcraft is a witchcraft practice in and of itself. Hmm. And so he argues that, um, you know, white supremacy kind of got its power through Christianity and, and colonial consumption. And so one of the things that's really disturbing in a lot of the research I did, and I would urge everyone to get the book by Vincent Woodard titled The Delectable Negro. It's a really disturbing book, but it's a history I think animal rights activists should know. Um, it was actually really common for white colonizers to actually literally eat black and brown people. Wow. And there's, yeah, disturbing, and I didn't know this. And so, you, you know, when you think about it, um, a lot of white people are always looking at black and brown nations and, again, calling their practices primitive or showing how they engage in acts of cannibalism. But it was actually a, a common practice of colonizers to do that. And I actually argue that in my book that, like, in the same way, like, as we know, rape today is like a tool of war, a horrible, disgusting, sordid tool of war. Consumption was actually a tool of colonization. And um, in terms of metaphorical consumption, in terms of appropriating and stealing someone's land, their culture, their language, their names, who they are, but also literal consumption, like literally eating people. And so Vincent Woodard has um, a book where he uses former slave narratives who talked about actually witnessing you know, white people eating blacks. And so it's a really uncomfortable history, but you, when you think about it um, and you, you look at that practice, it almost is a white supremacy and racism is almost its own form of witchcraft in that sense. And so he actually also, um, Dr. Perkinson, draws upon Christianity. Um, so I'm going to give a quick story here that he says Christianity, if we were, it's so normalized in the West, right? Seen as this like just regular religion. But he says, actually, if you read the text, it's like it's, it feels like witchcraft. Mm -hmm. And so growing up, I was raised Catholic in a church like my whole life. My father was a music director. He's an organist. I was in a choir my whole life. And um, one song that we always sang was called Taste and See. And if you're Catholic, I'm not Catholic anymore, but I was raised Catholic. If, you, if anyone who's listening is Catholic, um, they might know that song. And it's played during mass when it's communion time and communion is the time when everyone gets and they eat the bread which is like a wafer and if you think about it the bread actually represents jesus's body mm -hmm. and then you drink wine which is supposed to represent jesus's blood mm -hmm. now we're just used to saying this like it's a normal day right <laughs> you just go to church on sunday and like oh i'm gonna eat the body and blood of christ but when you really step back and you're looking at this from a different context it's like what the hell is going on like that sounds it sounds like sh like some type of shamanistic practice, right. but because white people are doing it, because it's a Western thing, it's seen as like this noble, you know, thing. I'm like, you, it's weird, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it kind of turns the sorcery of James Perkinson back on white supremacy and Christianity. And so what I do is I take Perkinson and Woodard's work 
on consumption, colonial consumption. And I bring animals into that conversation by showing how eating animals today is a part of that conversation, is a part of that colonial consumption. Yes. So, I know that might sound super weird, but I, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's fascinating. Um, I, I actually wanted to quickly read one quote from the book that really jumped out at me. Um, this is something that to me seems to encapsulate much of your central thesis. Uh, it goes, veganism isn't just about kicking a meat-eating habit and getting some veggies into your diet. It's a powerful rejection of a racist food system and a racist cannibalistic politics that characterizes animals and non-white people as disposable and consumable. This is why anti-racist theory matters in our efforts to free animals. The goal isn't just to get people to replace chicken with tofu, although that's a great start. The goal is to get the public to understand why animals matter on a political and ethical level. The goal is to reveal how the current power structure relies upon anti-black and anti-animal ideologies to strengthen itself, end quote. So I'm wondering, um, just going back to this statement of... um, veganism being a powerful rejection of a racist food system and racist cannibalistic politics. Can you explain what you mean by cannibalistic in this context? Yeah, sure. So it, cannibalism in this context is a quite is kind of like a paradox because on the one hand, people of color um, aren't fully seen as human. So it's like, well, is it cannibalism, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're homo sapien. So it is cannibalism. And so in, in, in talking about anti-racism and veganism, and this is, again, why veganism is oftentimes a really confusing vehicle to talk about um, these politics. It's, it's really confusing. And that's why I hate using the term vegan sometimes because it's so reductionist. But if we understand that white supremacy you know, marks certain bodies as non-human or subhuman or animals, not only bolster their own superiority, but to have an excuse to consume them, <laughs> that we can see how veganism can offer us more than just being anti-speciesist or just fighting factory farming. Like, we're, all, we're underestimating the power of veganism here. Like, veganism, if we link all these histories together of colonial consumption, um, the ways in which certain bodies, not only just animal, but people of color were consumed, veganism, with that history, offers us so much more. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it goes back to that history of consumption and taking and metaphorical consumption that veganism if we take all that into account is a rejection of colonial consumption in its totality and essentially eating others that are deemed racially inferior so sill and i make this point again that animals are racial subjects in this particular white supremacist order and so we reject eating their bodies we reject colonial consumption again like i said just as rape is a tool of war Eating others is a tool of colonialism. It has always been. And that's why I think veganism has the power to do more than what it's doing right now. And I don't think we'll ever reach that potential until we knock down the borders placed around our movements. Because it's it's frightening to me that um, animal rights activists are so invested in people, you know, ending meat consumption. But they don't know about this history of other types of consumptions. And if we knock the borders down and put all this literature together... We have a really, really powerful um, tool. And so this is why, um, you know, for a lot of people who might be listening, they might be like, wait a minute, Af, are you like comparing oppressions? Are you comparing what black people are going through to what animals are going through? And I always say um, no. Mm-hmm. And first of all, I'll be one of those people to say I, I don't think I'm not offended by comparisons. Um, I don't think a lot of people have a good justification for being offended by comparisons. I think it's just this thing that we've just accepted that it's insensitive and we shouldn't probe any further. And I always say when someone 
has uh, just because something is sensitive doesn't mean we shouldn't probe it further or talk about it. In fact, we should. However, comparisons. Um, that's the that's not the relationship between what black people are going through and animals. It's not like a comparison. And so in my book, I call it um, a grammar system. So let me explain this so that people aren't being like, oh my gosh, F is comparing black people to animals. I'm mm -hmm. not doing that. So I'm going to ask listeners to like think about this for a second. So imagine that white supremacy, and this is going to be hard to do, but imagine white supremacy is a sentence, right? So you pull out a piece of paper and you write a sentence down with a period point. And that is supposed to represent white supremacy, the sentence itself. I'm arguing in my theory that racial violence is represented by one word in that sentence. And animal violence is represented by another word in that sentence. They make up the building blocks of that entire sentence. You need them both to read the sentence to make sense, right? So racial violence and animal violence are two different words in that white supremacist sentence. And they need to be read together. So it's not about comparing the two words. That doesn't even make sense. It's like comparing the word and and the. They're two different words, but they are a part of a grammar system of white supremacy. And so that's why it's difficult to talk about this stuff because everyone thinks through an intersectional lens where racism is one thing, sexism is one thing, speciesism is one thing. And I don't think like that. I don't think everything is its own individual system that can be compared or intersect. I see everything as being composed of one another. Almost like um, in my book, I say instead of two dimensions, like a, you know, a piece of paper, a flat piece of paper, I see a cube. I, don't, I see this as being multidimensional. So it's not about comparing animal violence and racial violence. It's understanding they're composed of one another. Uh -huh. So I just want to put that out there. And if that's confusing, I promise that in the book it will make complete sense because it's illustrated. And I purposely illustrated it because there's no way for me to actually talk about it without like a, a, like a PowerPoint. I found that out. Right. <laughs> so like, I'm like, let me, put, let me illustrate this. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The illustrations were really cool, actually. It was a great addition. I just wanted to quickly clarify for listeners as well. You've referred to Syl a couple of times. That's your mm -hmm. sister, Syl Co., who was Sorry. the co-author of your first book, correct? Yes, yeah. Syl, yes, yes. She uh, authored, um, co-authored Afroism, my first book. And, yeah, so she's very smart. Awesome, yeah. <laughs> um, so, now, I'm not sure if this is maybe outside your purview as a theorist, but I'm wondering if you have some suggestions for some concrete ways in which activists can apply the theoretical framework you propose to our advocacy. And I'm wondering for white activists in particular, is there an effective and sensitive way in which we can approach these conversations? Sure, these are good questions. Um, so as a theorist, I don't create practical blueprints for people. And so in the book, I um, essentially link or try to analogize like being a social theorist to being like, let's say like a mathematician or someone who does mathematical theory. And I give um, the example of fractal geometry, which was a mathematical theory, I think born in the seventies. It was just a theory and, and people didn't really care for it. But without this theory, we wouldn't be able to have cell phones today. Right? So engineers took fractal geometry and made tiny little antennas. And now they fit into our phones and we can have these really cool, sleek and cool phones that fit in the pocket. But that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for a theory. So what theorists do is we create ideas that oftentimes seem like elitist or disconnected to like the everyday needs of people. But that's what theory is. It's, it's actually it's as necessary as any other form of activism. And what we do is we create ideas that activists in the future... I almost call them like social engineers, social activists can take these blueprints and create something like tangible with it. That's not what I do. However, the, what I can offer now to people or some advice 
is to stop thinking through movements. I have found movement logic and movement thinking to be so destructive to understanding an oppression. Uh, so destructive. And so it wasn't until I just completely just walked outside of all these movements and just looked at the literature itself that I started to see like new solutions and ideas. And that's how I was able to write this book. The, I wouldn't have written this book again if I only stayed in the Amorites movement logic and theory. And so, um, and in terms of white people, I don't, I don't necessarily, um, write just for white people or give the white people specifically advice. And I think that we sometimes underestimate white people's ability to contribute to this conversation. And I say this because there are already a lot of white people doing this work. In fact, I purposely start my new book out with two quotes from two white theorists. One of them is Lindgren Johnson, who wrote one of the best books I have ever read ever about anti-racism in animals. And it's called race matters, animal matters. And she's a white woman and she uses black theory to write about animals and race. And that is the the future that I see. I see a ton of white people are already doing this, but we just, a lot of people just don't know it. And so even James Perkinson is the second quote I use. I purposely start the book out and he's a white man who has written some of the best theory I have ever read in my existence about white supremacy. And so I think white people are doing work. I think that Sometimes in the vegan movement, there becomes this really superficial war between white vegans and black vegans. And for me, I used to be really invested in that. Like years ago, I used to be like, oh, man, it's the white vegans. And then I slowly learned over time that it is, it is not the white vegans. It's Eurocentric theory that even black people are subscribed to. And I realized that even when I went into racially homogenous spaces, like let's say only black vegans were around, I still felt the whiteness. I still felt the problem. And it's because it's the theory we're using. It's not the melanin level. And so that's why I would argue, let's not think about this through what white people can do, what black people can do. But it's about um, a kind of uh, throwing out or decentering Eurocentric theory and adding in black theory. Because when we add in black theory or decolonial theory, regardless of whatever your race is, beautiful new insights are produced. And that's why I would really urge people to check out Lindgren Johnson and James Perkinson, who are white people, who honestly, I feel like they even write better than I do <laughs> about race. But I'm black. You know, like I, they write honestly they write better than i do about black you know anti-racism and it's 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 impressive so that's that's what i would say cool um yeah well we're coming to the end of the interview here do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us sure um so the book uh right now is available as an ebook and it's going to be printed later this month on recycled paper i really urge people to get the printed because um, I think it's super cool and they use this cool effect on the cover that they haven't done before with Afroism. So I'm really, I'm really excited to hold a copy of it. So um, just letting everyone know it should be available later this month. On the, and it's available for pre-order right now. Amazing. Well, uh, thank you so much, Af, for joining us on Animal Voices today and sharing these incredible insights with us. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I had a blast. Thank you, Elise. And once again, that was writer and decolonial theorist Afco. Her new book, Racism as Zoological Witchcraft, A Guide for Getting Out, is available this month. Buy it, read it. It's fantastic. If you'd like to learn more about Af and her work, visit afco.com. That's A-P-H-K-O dot com. The DTES Response Fund supports COVID-19 rapid response efforts for the 15,000 people at risk in Vancouver's downtown east side. 
Your financial donation helps cover food, hygiene products, cleaning supplies, transportation, and telecommunications. All donations are being received by the Network of Inner City Community Services Society and will receive a charitable tax receipt. Visit their website at dtesresponse.ca. That's dtesresponse.ca. You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio in so-called Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada on unceded and ancestral Makrim, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish lands. Join us next Friday, July 10th, for another show with wonderful original content. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Animal Voices Vancouver, on Twitter as Animal Voices YVR, and email us at radioanimalvoices at gmail.com. Now we'll leave you with the song Freedom by local Indigenous musician Dakota Bear. Thank you for listening and remember to be kind to the animals. I'm doing this work as we can't just pray anymore. We must do something and we need to do it now. I need to get right into this message so you feel where I'm coming from. The people are standing together, there's power in numbers. We will not fall where you want us, we learn in the laws you throw in upon us. You throw us in water, we notice piranhas. The people they needing a leader just know that I'm on it. I'm honest in everything that I do. Every word that I write is true. The people that get it, they know that the picture is bigger. So pull up a seat and you listen, you put in your fist in the air. You know the resistance is here. You'll hear us off in the distance. We are the kids that you dismissed. We are the targets you just missed. We are descendants of healers and chiefs Just know that our struggles are brief Just know that we one and the same I'm from the prairies, the plains I'll go my hair out until I can braid it again I'm no longer ashamed I promised our people our hardships will not go in vain You're hearing my voice and a melody carry the pain I do not do this for money your fame I just wanna be me I just wanna feel free Is that too much that we ask? Look to the future but learn from the past I know that sometimes we clash And it's just life a man of my word and a man of advice I just wanna feel free We just wanna live our lives We don't wanna have to worry Tell me can you help me It don't seem like you've been in a hurry You playing judge and jury I feel I'm under siege Get the matches, burn the sage Chapters over, turn the page Author of my destiny But they telling me differently We just wanna live our lives We don't wanna have to worry You see the solution Our minds are as clear as the water As soon as you see the pollution We want the freedom and not the illusion We are the warriors The ones that you read in the stories We are notorious I just wanna be me I just wanna feel free We just wanna live our lives We don't wanna have to worry Tell me can you help me It don't seem like you've been in a hurry You playing judge and jury I feel I'm undeceived Get the matches, burn the sage Chapters over, turn the page Author of my destiny But they telling me differently We just wanna live our lives We don't wanna have to worry Tell me
My name is Dakota Bear and my spirit name is Blue Thunder. I'm from unceded, unsurrendered lands of Treaty 6 and we are now situated on the unceded and unsurrendered lands of the Coast Salish peoples.